Well, folks, I want to uh, get started this morning by asking you to take a brief trip down memory lane. And specifically, I want you to take a trip down your memory lane. And I want you to think about a time that you experienced great adversity in your life. It may have been uh, the death of a loved one. Maybe you experienced a a tragic accident or someone who you love was the victim of a a tragic accident. Perhaps you've, you've lost your job or maybe you haven't lost your job, but you are in the midst of just a horrific work environment. Maybe you made a horrible financial decision. And that decision, perhaps, that you made maybe years ago continues to haunt you to this very day. Perhaps you have experienced the betrayal of a friend or a family member. Maybe you went to the doctor's office and you received a life-altering diagnosis. Perhaps you have endured painful mistreatment because of the accent of your voice or the color of your skin or the country where you've come from or perhaps the the convictions that that you hold. And perhaps you can't think of, of just one single event. Maybe your life has been filled with great adversity for a long period of time. Maybe there have been a a series of difficult events. Perhaps you have been in a, a constant state of adversity because of the consistently poor choices that, that were made by your mom or your dad, maybe a, a caregiver or more times than not, maybe consistently poor decisions that you have made. Perhaps the the community that that you grew up in wasn't safe, or maybe the the country that you're from was uh, an oppressive country and one not known for its freedoms. But for whatever reason it is, either now or at some point in your life, you faced great adversity. Now, if you were a Christian at the time in which you were facing that great adversity, I want you to think about how did that adversity affect your faith? Did your, the adversity that you experienced, did it make your your faith stronger? Did did you lean into God's word, into the midst of your pain? Did you run to him for comfort and encouragement? Or did your faith waver? Did you flee from God in disappointment? Perhaps shake your fist at him in anger? Maybe you you sought to to punish him by by no longer praying or or no longer reading his word. 
You see, what we do with God in the midst of the adversity that we are inevitably going to go through in life impacts directly how we overcome that adversity. And that's what I want to show you this morning as we continue our series through the seven letters or to the Jesus' letters to the seven churches of Revelation. This morning we are, we're going to look at the church of Philadelphia. Uh, the account of that letter is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, uh, you can make your way there. If you don't have an app on your phone or a Bible in your hand, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. It will also be up on the big screen. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And if you are able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The one, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patience and endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, it was extraordinarily difficult to be a faithful Christian in the first century Roman city of Philadelphia. And it was extraordinarily difficult for a, a number of different reasons. First of all, it was difficult geographically to live in Philadelphia because it was situated in an area of great seismic activity because of its proximity to a volcano. And as such, the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor in the first century uh, regularly experienced earthquakes which made living inside the city walls extraordinarily dangerous because you would be living in, in structures that, that could possibly fall and, and crush you in the middle of the night when there's this seismic activity. And as a result, many of the people who hailed from Philadelphia actually lived out in the fields rather than what would typically be the safety of the city walls. 
But there was an upside to living near an active volcano. And that upside was when the volcano would erupt and, and spew lava and spew ash, it ultimately, over time, would make the ground extraordinarily fertile. And it was especially fertile for the growing of, of grapes. And the people in Philadelphia, they were massive vine dressers, growers of, of grapes and, and winemakers. As a matter of fact, the city became known throughout the entire area or the entire empire of, of Rome as, as basically the, the capital of where wine was made. And that was great until that fateful day in 92 AD, just a few years before this letter was written to the church in Philadelphia, when the Roman emperor, Domitian, in an effort to boost the profits of the, the grape growers around the city of Rome, ordered that throughout the entire Roman Empire, that half of the grape vines be dug up and never be replanted. And with this singular government edict, it, it devastates the economy of Philadelphia, thus making it not only geographically difficult to live in this city, but economically difficult to live in the city. But that's just the half of it. It was also religiously difficult to live in the city of Philadelphia. You see, in the early days, the Christian church, or the early days of the Christian church, Christians who were predominantly ethnic Jews with Gentiles mixed in, they, they were welcomed to worship in the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And then on Sunday, these Jewish Christians would gather together in private homes to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to eat meals together. So from the, the Roman government's perspective, these Christians were, were just a, a sect of Judaism. And for these first century Christians, that's a really good thing because the Romans didn't force the Jews to participate in emperor worship. They allowed the, the Jews to basically do their own thing, but everybody else in, Rome, in, in the Roman Empire, they were required to worship the emperor. So if you're a Christian and you're worshiping in the Jewish synagogue, the Romans are giving you a pass. You, you don't have to worry about being ostracized because you're not worshiping the emperor. But in 70 AD, all of that changes. Because in the years leading up to 70 AD, the, the Jews began to rebel against the Romans. And it was a protracted rebellion, and ultimately in, in 70 AD, right, it was actually a year or so before that, the Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And ultimately, they came in and they destroyed the temple. And it was devastating to the Jews. And, and one of the ways that the Jews reacted to this destruction of their temple was to finally toss the Christians out of the synagogue. Now, this becomes a huge problem. Why? 
Because now that you're not worshiping in the synagogue, the Romans now understand that you really are not part of the Jewish faith any longer. And they are now beginning to require you to worship the Roman Empire. And when you refuse to worship the Roman Empire, you're treated horribly, not only by the Roman government, but also by all of the citizens that, that are around you in the town that you live. So think about what it must have been like to live as a Christian in the city of Philadelphia. You are... are in physical distress because of the constant threat of earthquakes and living outside of the city walls. You're in spiritual distress because you have been rejected by the Jews. You are in social distress because all of the, the Romans can't stand you because you're not worshiping the emperor. And you're in economic distress not only because your community has been decimated by the whim of the Romans, but also because your ability to make money now has been greatly inhibited because all of the Roman citizens, they hate you. That's the lot of the ones who were living in the city of Philadelphia. Yet for as much as they had going against them, there's one thing that they have going for them. And in this uh, short little letter here, we discover that what they have going for them is their faith. And I want you to look at how Jesus commends these folks for their faith. The first couple of verses. He says, I know your works. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. And so I ask you this morning, are you in distress at this moment? Do you feel like you have very little power? Are things not going the way that you desire? Are you struggling either physically or emotionally or economically or relationally or perhaps spiritually? Are, are you being mistreated by others? Yet, despite the distress and despite the powerlessness, you're being faithful. In the midst of the struggle, you've clung to God's word. You've not denied his name. You have patiently endured. If that's the case, take heart. Jesus sees your pain. And he sees your faith. Just like he saw the pain and the faith of those Christians that are struggling in the city of Philadelphia. And he will honor our faithfulness in the midst of our distress. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the big idea that I want you to see this morning. It's right up here on the screen. That, that God honors our faithfulness in the midst of adversity. The God that we serve will honor our faithfulness in the midst of adversity. Now, how exactly does he do that? Well, I believe that, that this little letter, it shows us a couple ways of how he does that. It's, this is not all-inclusive by any stretch of the imagination. But here are a couple ways that we're going to see this morning how he does this. Number one, 
Jesus will remind us of who he is. Just in case we forget, just in case we get confused, Jesus will come along and he will remind us of exactly who he is. The second thing that he will do is this. He will render justice on our behalf. Jesus knows when injustice is being inflicted upon someone, and at some point in time, Jesus will ensure that justice occurs. Number three, he will ultimately reward our faithfulness. He rewards us for being faithful. So let's look through these uh, three topics here just for a few moments. Number one, look again at verse seven, where we see Jesus reminds us of who he is. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. To a people who are being faithful in the midst of adversity, Jesus reminds them about three very important things about himself. Two of them are, are, are relatively general to them, and then one is very specific to their particular situation. Number one is this. He reminds them and he reminds us that we have the undivided attention of the Holy One. You see, Jesus isn't just a holy one, as if he is, uh, is, is one God amongst many gods. He's the holy one. He's the God of gods. He is the, the Lord of lords. And he sees the struggles that the people in Philadelphia are going through. And he sees the struggles that you are going through. Now, to be holy means to be distinct from everything else in the existing order. It's to possess moral and ethical wholeness or perfection. It's how God is described in Psalm 99 when it says this, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. You see, by declaring that, that, that he is holy, Jesus is reminding these suffering Christians and he's reminding us that he's God. That, that he is God and that he is God alone. And all of those gods that, that the Romans were worshiping and, and the worship of that emperor, they have nothing on the living God. God declares in Isaiah this, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. We live in an extraordinarily pluralistic society that believes that there are many gods. Brothers and sisters, if there are many gods, the God of Christianity is not a god. Jehovah 
God is the one and only. Secondly, Jesus is reminding them and he is reminding us that he is what? He is the true one. True means that which is genuine as opposed to that which is fake. Jesus never lies. He never fails to to do things that he is committed to. He is faithful to the end. And when we are in distress, and, and when our world is being shaken, and when we want to give up, we need to remind ourselves the God that we serve, the God of the Holy Bible, the Christ, he is both holy and he's true. He doesn't lie. He doesn't lead astray. He doesn't abandon us. He is for us. He is not against us. And when we remember that, it empowers us to be able to be faithful in the midst of adversity. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says one more thing about himself that has specific application to these Christians that are hurting in Philadelphia. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One and the True One, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, folks, what is written here is extraordinarily amazing, and let me explain it to you. The Jews had done something horrific to the people living in Philadelphia. They threw them out of the synagogue and they slammed the door behind them and they locked it, not allowing anyone who was a Christian to come back in. The Christians could, they could no longer worship in the synagogue. That, that would be like, you know, like, like taking half of you and throwing you out of here and saying, don't ever come back and putting key cards on the door so that you couldn't get in. That's what happened. They're thrown out of the synagogue. The door is shut. It is barred behind them. They're cast out, rejected by the Jews who have rejected Jesus 60 years prior. And while that rejection should have been hurtful, it should not have been surprising. Because Jesus was extraordinarily clear with his followers about the rejection that they should experience. In John 15, he says this, Remember the word that I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Yet while the Christians living in Philadelphia were cast out of a temporal earthly synagogue, they are what? They are welcomed into Jesus' eternal heavenly home. And Jesus, he's the one who holds what? The keys to heaven. 
Forget about the keys of the synagogue. He's the one who holds the keys to heaven. And it's Jesus and Jesus alone who determines who's going to dwell with him and who's not going to dwell with him. And while they may be temporarily rejected for their faith in Christ here on earth, they're going to be eternally received in heaven for their faith in Christ. And that brings us to the second way that Jesus honors our faithfulness in the midst of adversity. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I love you. See, here we see that Jesus will render justice on our behalf. Now, this is the first time that we have seen Jesus refer to the Jewish people who rejected and persecuted their former brothers and sisters who have converted to Christ as the synagogue of Satan. When we went through the letter to Smyrna, we saw the exact same words. And what's interesting, of all these seven churches in Revelation, there are only two churches that are not condemned but are only praised. And those two churches are Smyrna and Philadelphia. And in both cases, Jesus refers to the Jews that were in those cities as the synagogue of Satan. And so I'm wondering, is it possible that those who suffer the most for Christ are those the most grateful for Christ and as such, the most faithful? You see, it is, an ex- it is extraordinarily easy to be a Christian when life is going smoothly. It's easy to come to church and, and to worship God when, when I don't have problems and when you don't have problems. It's just it's a, a beautiful thing. When God is doing exactly what we want God to do, being a Christian is a walk in the park, Kazansky. little Top Gun humor there for a second. But when things go south, when struggles come our way, when God allows challenges to come into our lives, when Jesus doesn't do what we want, when we want, how we want, It's then when our faith is is put under pressure that we see the reality of what we believe. You see, living for Jesus in the first century wasn't easy. And and I want to show you how difficult it was. I want to show you in a moment, I want to show you a prayer that was written in a Jewish prayer book in, in, in the 90s, like 0090, when this letter was basically written. It came out just a few years. This was a prayer that would be prayed in the synagogue. Let me read it to you. For apostates, now imagine this being prayed here at Living Water. For apostates, let there be no hope. 
and the kingdom of insolence mayest thou uproot speedily in our days. And let Christians and the heretics perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and let them not be written with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the insolent. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. That prayer was written by those who considered themselves to be God's chosen people. They were the ones who who God had had declared to Abraham, their, their father and ultimately our father, that they would be a blessing to all the cities that that they encountered, that that they were to be an example of God's glory and the glory of God to a world that is is dying in its sin. And it's to those whom Jesus came and who rejected him, to those who, who kicked the first century Christians out of their synagogue, to those people Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. Now, what in the world does that mean? By calling the Jews in the first century the synagogue of Satan, Jesus is saying that they have rejected the right to be called God's people, and they were now being used by Satan in an attempt to destroy God's church. And while it looked like Satan was winning... A day of reckoning was coming. When Jesus was going to make things right, when justice was going to come to the Christians in Philadelphia that were suffering for their faith. And that is what Jesus means when he says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, if you have ever spent any time in children's Sunday school. Or maybe you have been involved in a a Bible study, or or perhaps you've just come to church for a long period of time. That last sentence about people coming and bowing down to other people should immediately take you to an account in the end of the book of Genesis. To Joseph. You see, Joseph was mistreated and rejected by his brothers. He is sold into slavery. He is lied about by an adultery-seeking woman. He's thrown into jail. He helps people in jail, and then he is forgotten by them when they are released. Yet in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, he remains faithful to God. And God honors him for his faith. He is raised to a position of great power. And eventually God placed his brothers, the ones who were the catalyst for all of his suffering, he placed them on their knees before Joseph. And on that day, after years of suffering, God brought justice into Joseph's life. You see, when we find ourselves 
in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficult, when things are hard, when we have been abused, when we have been treated poorly, when we are wondering if God really cares for us, it's then we need to remember that God yields justice for his people. Perhaps not in our time frame, but he never ultimately fails. Listen to the words of Psalm 140. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name and the upright shall dwell in your presence. You see, you and I, we can remain faithful to God in the midst of whatever may come our way because we can be confident that Jesus will render justice on behalf of those who are faithful to him. Now that brings us to the final truth that I found in this, hopefully that the Spirit has showed me in this passage. Look at verses 10 through 13. Because you've kept my word about patience and endurance, patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Neither shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, in this final little section of scripture, we discover that God will reward us for our faithfulness. Now, there is a ton that could be talked about in these four particular verses. And especially in verse 10, which some believe is a a reference to what is known as the Great Tribulation, which is seven years of suffering and distress that will come at the end of time. Now, if you're familiar with the the Left Behind series of of books, or maybe you've watched some of the Left Behind movies, you have an idea of one of many views of the Great Tribulation. The Left Behind series, the movies, the book, they're not the Bible. They're a great read. They, They teach theology, but they teach a particular theology. And so you need to understand there are many different views about the great tribulation. And I'm not going to spend any time on this because we would ultimately, we would head down a rabbit trail, okay? And at the end, we're, we're all going to have to agree to disagree because we're, we're all going to have different perspectives on this because literally that's what it is. It's perspectives, Now, I want you to know this, though. The Great Tribulation is real. It's coming. And we Christians very well may not be spared from all or part of it. The nice thing about the Left Behind series is the Christians get out of Dodge before the world falls apart. That's a great place to be. Whether it's reality or not, that's a different story. So 
as for me and my house, I'm going to prepare for the worst, hope for the best. So instead of speculating on things that we have absolutely no control over, I want you to look at how God rewards those who endure. First, he will protect us from the temptation to give up both physically and spiritually when we are facing adversity. What does he say? He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, now the hour here that is being discussed is not 60 minutes. The hour here is a period of time. And the trial that's being referenced here is basically afflictions, distress, and pain that is thrust upon followers of Jesus Christ from their enemies. So what Jesus is saying is that in times of temptation, it is his power that empowers us to withstand both the attacks of our earthly and our spiritual enemies. It makes me think of that incredibly encouraging verse in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There is nothing that you and I are tempted in that others are not tempted in. That's comforting to know. We're not alone in struggles. In struggles with sin, with with lust, with greed, with pride, whatever it would be, it's common. And everyone at some point fails. Jesus is the only one who never fails. So it's common. It goes on. But he says this, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted, what? Beyond your ability. So when that temptation comes, you already have the ability, I already have the ability to say no. The question is, will I do that? And to my shame, I don't always. And I'm betting to your shame, you don't either. But he says this, but with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That when the temptation comes into our lives, God is faithful. He provides a way out. Something happens in the midst of the temptation where we need to say, am I going to go that way towards towards God's word and life and hope, or am I going to go that way towards my flesh and death? What will I choose? And so here we see that that, that God is with us in the midst of our temptation. Secondly, he does this. Not only does he protect us from temptation, but he gives us security. He says, I I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, this this whole phrase, this pillar in the temple of my God, it basically symbolizes stability and permanence. It's something that, that the Christians in Philadelphia, they would have definitely desired. They're living in a town that's literally falling down around them. And what they want stability and security. 
because nothing in their life was stable. And not only were they physically in danger, they're religiously in danger. Their life's not stable religiously because they've got nowhere to worship. And as such, they long for security and permanence. And that's exactly what Jesus gives them. And he does the same thing in our lives. He gives us hope and strength and courage in the midst of the battle. And third, and perhaps the most beautiful part, he gives them and he gives us a new name. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him. Did you notice that? It's in the singular. This is personal. I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You see, this name that gets written on us, it takes three different forms. Form number one, Jesus writes the name of my God, which means what? We belong to him. Think Toy Story. Think Woody. Think, think what was on the bottom of Woody's shoe. The name what? Andy. He was Andy's. That's what God does for us. Jesus comes along. He writes his name on us. In Sharpie, indelible, can't be erased. Number two, he writes on us the name of the city of my God, which means what? That that we are going to be citizens of the new heaven and earth. When, When we leave this place because of God's grace, with our faith, We dwell with God in eternity in heaven forever. I mean, where's the hope for those who attend our grief sure class? It's in the fact that the one who went before them, who loved Jesus, lives, is alive, that they're going to see them again. Finally, Jesus writes on us his own new name. Now, what exactly Jesus' new name is up for speculation, but if you think about it, really doesn't matter. What matters is we share the name with him. He aligns himself with us. And for those of us who are struggling right now, the God of the universe wants us to know that he is for us and not against us. And he showed that above all on the cross of Calvary. On that cross, he died for your sins and mine. Sins we've committed in the past, sins that we're committing right now, sins that we will commit in the future. The infinite God of the universe died for all of those sins. And he went there voluntarily and he did it out of love, not out of obligation. And he did it not because you're perfect or adorable or I'm perfect or adorable. He loved us, why? 
not because we bring anything to the table, but simply because he chose to love us. And that perhaps, not perhaps, that is the most beautiful form of love. When we are loved simply for the sake of love. Not because of anything we bring to the table. So if you are in despair today, take heart. Jesus is for you, not against you. If you have come into this place and you have yet to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave this place without repenting of your sins. Don't leave this place with, with, without opening your, your life and your mind and your heart to the God of the universe, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's lots of ways that, that people do that. They're like, I see that hand, I see that hand. I don't like any of that stuff. I don't like to manipulate people. I believe the God of the universe draws people to himself. And if he is drawing you to himself today, it is incumbent upon you to act. It is incumbent upon you, whether it's in, the, in your seat, whether you feel like you need to come up here and, and kneel down, whether, whether you need to find me or Pastor Ben or one of our other elders or, or our staff members or the person sitting beside you, whether you need to say, I, I, I want to receive Jesus in my life today. It is up to you. Don't squander that opportunity. We are not promised tomorrow. Confess your sin, receive him as Lord and Savior, and, and begin the most beautiful and the most difficult journey that you will ever have. But you will know that in the midst of adversity, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are good. Father, I pray for those who are here today that are struggling greatly. Lord, those who love you, who have not abandoned the faith, I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that you would make yourself extraordinarily known to them, that, that they would see that, that you are holy and that you are true, that, that you will never leave them, forsake them, never abandon them, Heavenly Father. I pray that they would see, Heavenly Father, that their sins have been covered by your shed blood and that they would rejoice, Heavenly Father, that their name has been written in the book of life. Lord, help us to endure in the midst of that. Because hope does come in the morning. And Lord, for those who are in this place right now who have not yet received you, I pray, dear God, that your spirit would burden them so greatly right now, Heavenly Father. That, Lord, they could do nothing but right now, in tears, confess their sin to you and receive your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, and walk in the newness of life. Lord God, do that work that only you can do. Guide them, direct them, put someone in their path who can be with them, Heavenly Father, in the most important decision that they will ever make. And it's through your Son's risen and glorified, wonderful name that we praise. Amen.